Good morning. Great to see everybody here today. It's good to see some faces we haven't seen in a few weeks. So glad some of you are back who haven't been able to be with us. I know we have some visitors as well, and we're delighted that you're here. Uh, we have some visitor cards on either ends of the pews. If you want to fill one of those out for us, that would be great. You can give them to me, David, or Blaine, or put them in the receptacles in the back where the contributions go as well. But we're delighted everybody's here. Thank you for being here this morning. All year long, we've been covering a series once a month on the foundations of faith. We've been covering the core principles or the essential elements of the Christian faith, the, the principles that really mark us out as Christians, kind of the defining principles of the Christian faith. And we've been going over this list right here, developed by Dr. Scott Adair, and we finished this list last week. David talked about the hope of the resurrection through Jesus uh, last month, rather. Um, and so we're only in September, so we still have a few more months we've got to cover here. So we're going to be adding some foundational principles ourselves to this list. And uh, that will kind of be how we do the rest of this series for the, for the year. This morning, we wanted to cover number eight, the fact that the Bible is God's word. The Bible is God's word. Now this is a obviously a fundamental principle of the Christian faith that we believe the Bible is not just your ordinary book. It's not just any book. It's the book of books. It is from God. And because it is, we base our lives upon this book. We follow it, try to follow it as, as closely as possible. We're not perfect, but we base our lives off of this. We base everything that we do off of this. And this is really one of the big pleas of the Church of Christ, too, is to get back to the Word of God as closely as possible. And so, generally, all Christians believe that the Bible is God's Word. It's a fundamental principle. And so that's what we're going to be covering this morning. And the truth is, the Bible claims to be God's Word multiple times. I mean, over and over and over again, the Bible here in this word makes claims to being more than just a book, to be a book from God. Look at a few passages, and these will be familiar to you. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is really probably one of the go-to passages here for this. But it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now notice the first part, all scripture is inspired by God. I'll do, I like some other translations that say all scripture is God-breathed, maybe, your translation may say. The point is, all scripture comes from God, not 50%, not 75%, or even 99.9%, 100%. All scripture comes from God. It's inspired by Him. And because it is, because it's from God... It's profitable for us in every single way. We talked about this a few weeks ago in a, a different lesson, that it, it, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training us. All these ways it equips us for every single good work because it's from God. The God of God is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He knows what's best for us. And so if we follow this word, his word, we're going to profit from it. There's no doubt about that. So that's one passage. All scripture is inspired by God. How about 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21? But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. 
For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The men who penned the scriptures, the, the men who prophesied, they, they weren't just doing this on their own volition, just, well, I think this would be good to, to put this together. No, the Holy Spirit's carrying them, every one of these men along, who prophesied in scripture, right, who penned the, the holy scriptures. I like what uh, <coughs> Kenneth Gangle says in his commentary. He says, as the authors of scripture wrote their prophecies, they were impelled or borne along by God's spirit. What they wrote was thus inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16, we just read that passage. The scripture's human authors were controlled by the divine author, the Holy Spirit. Yet they were consciously involved in the process. They were neither taking dictation nor writing in a state of ecstasy. No wonder believers have a word of prophecy which is certain. And no wonder a Christian's nurture must depend on the scriptures. They are the very words of God himself. So the Holy Spirit guided each of these authors... But it, each author still had their unique context, their, their unique personalities that were used within the writing. Uh, and so the Holy Spirit was guiding it all, though. It's not like they just did this on their own. Like, hey, let's put this book together. And, and they, they collaborate. No, it, the Holy Spirit guided every one of these writers. And since he did, we need to follow that because that's God's word, right? How about Hebrews 4, verse 12? This passage does not say that the Holy Spirit guided the authors or that it's inspired by God, but I think it points to more, it, the Bible being more than just a book, the average book. Here's what it says. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What other book can be described like the Bible, like the Hebrews writer describes the Bible here. The word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any sword. It can judge our thoughts and intentions. When we come to this book, our lives are really exposed and we're corrected and we're convicted by this word. It pierces us deep within. It's alive and active because it's from God. His words are still living. And when we come to this book, we are changed, we are pierced within, and it works in our lives. Really, no other book can do what the Word of God can do. Now, most of us probably know these passages that we've covered this morning. You probably know and you probably believe that the Bible is God's Word. The thing is, many, many people, millions, maybe even billions of people, do not believe that the Bible is God's Word. They don't. Look at this quote from uh, George Gallup and D. Michael Lindsay. This is from 1999. More Americans are moving toward an interpretation of the Bible as a book of fables, history, and moral precepts. As recently as 1963, two persons in three viewed the Bible as the actual word of God to be taken literally word for word. Today, only one person in three still holds to that interpretation. That was in 1999. So that's a long time ago, and so it's probably even grown even worse in, in recent times that people probably don't accept the Word of God as uh, the Bible as the Word of God. Word for word, it's from God. It's, yeah, it's a good book. It's got some good moral principles. It, it's got some, some really good tales in it, but is it really God's Word? No, not really. That's kind of the, the idea that many people have. 
And there are many reasons for this. Some have studied the Bible and they just simply reject it. They just can't come to terms with the fact that it is a divine book. There are others who simply don't know enough about it, haven't gotten into it enough to know it's God's word. And then there are others who simply do not care and they don't want to study it. And so if you run into a, a, a person who does not believe the Bible is God's word and you have a conversation with such person, you say, no, look, look, the Bible says that it's from God. They're likely not going to believe you just based upon the passages that we just looked at. Because if they don't believe the Bible is God's word, they're not going to accept the testimony from God's word about it being God's word. You're probably going to have to show them a little bit more to prove to them that the Bible truly is from God. Certainly we have to use scripture, but if they deny scripture, they're probably not likely just to say, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, you, I see it. You pulled out that verse, I believe. We're going to have to dive probably a little bit deeper with them. And so what I want to look at this morning is some things that we could point to to show that the Bible truly is from God. That it's not just a man-made book of tales and fables or just some moral precepts. It really truly is a divine book from the living God. So let's look at that this morning. Number one, I think very importantly, we have to point to the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. Now what we're talking about when we talk about the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible is that the Bible is completely true and trustworthy. There are no errors, no contradictions, no inconsistencies, no falsehoods. It's all right and true. There's no problems within the Bible. The psalmist says this in Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Some translations put it this way in Psalm 119, 160, the entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. The entirety of your word is truth. When we add it all together, everything that we find in God's word is true. It's not inaccurate. It's not false information. It's all true. It's all right. It's all accurate. Now, this makes sense. Because we believe that God is a perfect God, right? God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't lie. Titus 1 verse 2 tells us God does not make mistakes or errors. And we just read that in the Bible, that the Bible is God-breathed. The Word of God, or all Scripture is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit carried the authors of Scripture. And if He did, then that means we'd expect the Bible to be perfect. Because God is perfect. God doesn't make errors or mistakes. And so His Word would thus be that same way, right? And some people, even Christians, folks, many Christians say, oh no, there's tons of inconsistencies and errors in Scripture. And I don't know if they really realize what they're saying when they say that. Because if all Scripture is God-breathed, well then you're saying God breathed an error, right? And, and we don't believe that. God does not make any mistakes. But the truth is, there are a lot of people out there who do believe that the Bible contains error after error after error. There are, there are uh, websites, there are books published about the alleged contradictions that we find in Scripture. But I just want to go ahead and say right here, right now, there has not been one single alleged contradiction that can be maintained or sustained. They can all, with a little bit of studying and a little bit of diving deep into God's Word, really not even a, a lot of times, it could be just a simple answer to these alleged contradictions. But if we just look, there is a, there's a, recon, we can reconcile these alleged contradictions that people throw out. 
Let me show you one example that people try to throw out about a, a contradiction that they find in Scripture. It's one of the classic examples is the death of Judas. All right, so if you look at the book of Matthew, verse 20, uh, chapter 27, verse 5, it says that Judas went away and hanged himself. That's Matthew's account. But then if you go to the book of Acts, in 1, verse 18, this is Peter talking here, Luke recording Peter's words. It said, Now this man acquired a field with the price of wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And so some say, hold on a second. Matthew says that, that he was hanged, but then Luke records Peter's words saying that he fell headlong. That's a contradiction. So God's word's inconsistent. Could it not be that Judas hanged himself and later he fell and bursted headlong? Right? Could, couldn't it have been that the, the limb he hung himself on was cracked and then later he fell down? Or after hanging for some time, it just, he just fell and he busted open? It could be that Matthew and Luke and recording Peter's words, of course, are recording just different parts of Judas's death. And so, w without, any, without diving into the scripture and actually looking at what some possibilities could be here, people say, oh, that's a contradiction. Yeah, it's a contradiction. But really, there's a ton of possibilities for what's going on here. And if we can prove that it's just possible, then there's no contradiction at all. And we don't have time to cover this, all these this morning. I'd like to point you to Apologetics Press. They have a great article and a lot of resources on these Bible contradictions, these alleged Bible contradictions, but none has ever been able to be maintained or sustained. Just a little bit of studying. A lot of times they like to say, hey, one author points out this guy, but this one adds a couple of other people with him. And, and again, just because an author adds that there were a couple of other people at a site does not, not point to a contradiction. They could just be adding supplemental information. And again, there's all types of contradictions that people try to throw out about the Bible. But again, they can't be maintained or sustained. We can really point out any, a lot of really easy ways to point out that these things are not contradictions. Again, we could go on and on about this. I found this quote I thought was really interesting. Men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. And a lot of men really don't want to accept the Bible because it contradicts their lifestyle, contradicts what they believe in and their values and so on and so forth. And so they, they attack it and try to throw out all these alleged contradictions. But in reality, all of God's word is true. All of God's word is accurate and right, and we can trust that. Now, what's so amazing about this is that the Bible was written over a, about 1,600 years, the span of 1,600 years, by about 40 different authors who were from different geographical locations, who had different contexts, who were just in different places across the world, and yet we find one consistent account with no errors, no problem. Don't you think that if it was just man-made, that if, if God wasn't behind it, if it was just man-made, wouldn't we find errors? Wouldn't we find contradictions and all of these issues? Listen, I've read a lot of scholarly articles, journals, textbooks, and even in those types of things, you find errors. You find issues and things that are not true. But with God's word, we come to it and we find that it's all true. It's all right. It's all accurate. It's inerrant and infallible. That's what we find when we come to God's word. Now, along these lines, 
We can also point to historical accuracy and archaeology. That the Bible doesn't just record these made-up places, made-up people, made-up events. It records history, things that actually happen, places that are really real. And real archaeology has uncovered a lot of these things. So let's look at this for just a few minutes. Uh, there was a man back in the, born back in the 1850s by the name of Sir William Ramsey. It's a picture of Sir William Ramsey. <coughs> and he was a very educated man, very skeptical of the Bible. And so he decided he was going to go out and he was going to disprove the book of Acts. He didn't trust it. He thought that it was written way after uh, it was said to have been written. And so he goes to, to uh, Israel and the other places in the book of Acts. And he starts doing some archaeology and things. And when he was done studying, trying to disprove the book of Acts, this is what he ended up saying. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. It was gradually borne in upon me that in various details the narrative showed marvelous truth. So a man who was a skeptic who didn't believe in Luke's words, he goes and he tries to, to test it out and he finds, man, what Luke recorded, it's accurate. He's a, he's a historian of the first rank and I found that there's a marvelous truth in this book and so Sir William Ramsey went on to write a book called St. Paul the Traveler and Roman Citizen and the trustworthiness of the New Testament the significance of recent discoveries and again we could go and look at archaeology have uncovered a lot of different places a lot of, of different artifacts that point to things we find in scripture uh, a couple of examples. Um, Corinth. This is the ancient city of Corinth. Haley and I actually got to go here back in 2019. We went to study abroad in, uh, with Faulkner, and we got to see the ancient city of Corinth. And this is what it looks like today. Uh, it's, it's just amazing how well-preserved it still is after all of these years. We still have this standing, and th th they've uncovered these things. Now, that top picture is what's called the Erastus inscription. The Erastus inscription. And basically what it says is, Erastus paved this pavement with his own expense. And in the Bible, we have three times a man by the name of Erastus mentioned. And the most important one is Romans 16.23, where Paul mentions a man named Erastus, who was a city treasurer. Now Paul seemingly wrote Romans from Corinth. And so some people say that, okay, this Erastus in Romans 16, 23, is this Erastus that's here in this pavement? Now, the truth is we can't actually prove that 100%, but it's still interesting that you find a man named Erastus here in the pavement in Corinth, and his name is mentioned, a name Erastus is mentioned in Scripture. But still, Corinth is not just a made-up place that, that we find, you know, just in Scripture. Oh, it's just, a, it's just a fable. It's just a place that they made up. No, we've uncovered these places and, and lots of other places. Jericho, Hazor, all types of places you could talk about. And, of course, we, we went to other places like Jerusalem and so on and so forth. Um, we talked about the book of Amos a few weeks ago in our series on Sunday nights. We've been going through the Minor Prophets. And in the book of Amos, chapter 1, he mentions an earthquake he, two years before the earthquake is when Amos started prophesying. And we talked about how there is a ton of evidence for an earthquake in Israel. People have done some digs, have done some archaeology and found 
rubble and things like that to point to the fact that there was an earthquake dating back to the time of Amos. It's amazing. And that's, that's hundreds of years ago. But they found this type of stuff that, that may point back to this earthquake that happened. How about Hezekiah's tunnel? This is an amazing thing that we could point to for archaeology, something else that, that we got to see. And during the time of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, launched an attack, and he was going to come and besiege Jerusalem. And, and we see that Hezekiah made preparations for this by bringing water into the city. Look at 2 Chronicles 32, 1-4. through 4. After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities and thought to break into them for himself. Now when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs which are outside the city, and they helped him. So many people assembled and stopped up all the springs and the stream which flowed through the region, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find abundant water? Another text about this is 2 Chronicles 32.30. It was Hezekiah who stopped the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all that he did. And one final passage is 2 Corinthians 20, 20. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Hezekiah made these preparations to bring water back into the city And here it is today. We have some pictures of this. That's me walking through. If you're claustrophobic, you don't want to do this uh, because there's walls on either side of you and it's right up here and there's water underneath you and you walk through this tunnel and it's the the only really fresh water source, I believe, for Jerusalem or it was. And, And you can walk through this even today. Find Hezekiah's tunnel. Now, this inscription here is the Siloam inscription that talks about the building of Hezekiah's tunnel. It talks about how these men were building and they could hear each other's voices when they got closer to one another. It's an amazing thing that, that Hezekiah lived hundreds of years ago and it's still there in Jerusalem. You can still walk through it. It wasn't just a made-up thing that the writers thought, hey, let's just talk about this tunnel here. No, it was really there. Something Hezekiah really did and you can go find it today. We could talk about example after example after example of the findings of archaeology. And we come to find that the Bible records things that are accurate, historically accurate, things that are true and real. And again, if this was just man-made, wouldn't we find some errors and things that were false? The thing is we find truth and perfection in God's word. Finally, the, one of the most amazing things we could point to is prophecy. Prophecy. The Bible contains so many prophecies, and what I really want to point to is the predictive prophecies, things about the future, that men predict things hundreds of years before they happen, and they come true, exactly as they prophesied it. If it was just a man saying, predicting something, what are the odds that that could be true? But the fact of the matter is, God was behind these men. Prophets didn't just speak on their own accord, right? God spoke through them. And so we've been going over the minor prophets on Sunday night, and we talked about Micah chapter 5, talks about a ruler rising from Bethlehem, right? And he was going to shepherd his people. And even the, 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 the wise men come, and they're looking for Jesus. And Herod talks to his, his scribes and says, hey, where's, where's this man supposed to be born? And they say, oh, Bethlehem of Judah. They're quoting Micah. 
And it's because Micah prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus came along that he would be born in Bethlehem and that he would shepherd his people. We've been going over Daniel in the men's class on Wednesday nights. And David, this past week, covered how Isaiah talks to Hezekiah and says, Hey, Babylon's going to come and they're going to take away the king's treasures. They're going to take away some people into exile. And a hundred years later, exactly what Isaiah prophesied came true. What are the odds if somebody predicted something a hundred years from now that it would come true? Very slim. But if God's involved, it will come to pass. Look at a very specific pa uh, passage, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Some 700 years Isaiah's prophesying before Jesus comes along, before Mary comes along, the Virgin Mary, and what happens? The Virgin Mary is with child, and she gives birth to Jesus. Now, nobody called him, called him Emmanuel, like called him that name, like, hey, Emmanuel, come here. But Emmanuel is just a title given to Jesus, God with us, like many other titles that we give to Jesus. He was God in the flesh. And hundreds of years before Jesus, Jesus came along, was born of a virgin, Isaiah prophesied that it was going to happen. And we know that because Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23 quotes this, talking about Jesus' birth with, and, and Joseph being involved, the angel coming to Joseph. He says this, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, that's Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Again, think about how amazing that is. That hundreds of years before Jesus comes along, Isaiah prophesied that he would be born of a virgin and be called Emmanuel. He was God with us. Hundreds of years before. What are the odds that that happens? Slim to none. And we have prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that we could show it comes true. Because God's words come true. I love what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 2. He was looking to... Uh, well, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and no one can interpret it. No one can figure it out. And he decides he's going to kill all the wise men in Babylon. But Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they pray to God, and God gives Daniel the answer, the interpretation of uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And this is what Daniel says after he had received the answer from God. He says this, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and epochs. He, know, he removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. God knows everything. God knew Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he's the one who gave it to Daniel to interpret, and it was about things way down the line in history. And Daniel was saying, wisdom and power belongs to God. He gives knowledge to everyone. It really is with God, knowledge and understanding and wisdom, and he can make known anything to whom he wills, and he did to his prophets, and they predicted things, and they came true. Again, Prophecy points to the fact that the Bible is from God. It couldn't have just been man prophesying or just making these things up and predicting all these things accurately. 
when we look at all the evidence, folks, and we could look at more things, but we're out of time this morning, we come to the conclusion we started with. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. When we follow the evidence, we find that we can trust that the Bible is from God. And since it's from God, we need to be in it. We need to be reading it and studying it. And we will benefit if we do that. We can trust this book. We can trust it's from God. There's no other book like it. This morning, if you have not been in the book and you've been wandering away, we want you to come forward and get back to it. If you've never gotten into this book and uncovered the truth and the beauty that we find in these words from God, we want you to come forward this morning. If you have any need, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.